This week on Merchants of Change, we've got former Colby College mule, Kat Mackey. Kat's approaching her seven-year anniversary at Dell EMC. She started as a BDR and is currently a senior manager of Inside Sales. She has deep experience coaching and leading BDRs and inside sellers. Here she is, Kat Mackey. I'm J.R. Butler, co-founder of The Shift Group, and you're listening to Merchants of Change. This is a podcast about transferring the skills and behaviors we acquire as athletes into being a professional technology salesperson. Each week, we'll introduce you to a top performer who will help us understand how they became professional merchants of change. What's up, kid? How we doing? What's up, JR? We're good. We're good. Happy to be here. Yes, yes. Today, we've got Kat Mackey on the show. Kat, thank you for joining us. Hello, hello. Thanks for having me. Excited for this. I am too. I'm really excited. I, uh, I'm not sure if you've, if you've listened to, to the MOC, the Merchants of Change, um, but our, our audience is really like new sellers and for you know athletes that might be considering a career shift into sales. And, and that's our entire mission. We help you know, elite athletes become elite sales professionals. Um, and all of our guests have been kind of former athletes like yourself. Um, so we like to start with the sports career, then the transition, and just talk about, you know, best practices and sales in general. So we always start with the same question. I, I, it's a very broad question uh, by design, but I, we'd love to hear like some of your favorite memories of playing hockey. Like what's the first thing that kind of comes to your mind when you think of that? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I feel like the, I go back to the good old days when I think about hockey, I, I was in in high school in Maryland and Maryland's not really known for hockey, much less women's hockey. So it was a lot of travel for me. It was a 45 minute commute to the rink. So I'd get there an hour early to beat the traffic. I'd stay an hour late to beat the traffic and ended up with like five hours of 14 year old self, just kind of entertaining and milling around and making friends. And I feel like those, those days were the best where you're just gonna, no other worries in the world. You're just gonna hang out with your friends, play a sport that you love, um, get a little bit of break from your parents and, and goof off. And I, I love those memories. We, we burned some hours in Rockville and it was a really good time and kind of transitioned that into college too. But that's like when I think about just like core hockey memories, it's just like turning it into something real and the friendships that you get from it. Is that pre-internet, Kat? I don't want to... <laughs> no iPhones, <Yeah>. no, <laughs> no Snapchat. I don't think I had an Instagram either. It's like you were literally just getting into trouble or trying to stay out of it. A little bit of both. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is awesome. I, I couldn't agree more though. Like the friendships are the best, but do you have like a, any, like what's a highlight? Like, give me, give me something like a goal, yeah. uh, anything. Yeah. So the one that, that I always think about, I, I was a defender, never a goal scorer. I think I had like 10 goals in my college career, but we were playing Trinity and they were always the most brutal team to play. Like so tough, so intense. They, they were just bullies and we didn't usually beat them, but we took them into OT. I think it was my junior year. Um, and we were on a penalty kill in OT, and I somehow ended up on offense, like, you know, when you're doing the triangle on a on a penalty kill. And intercepted a puck and took it down and on a breakaway and went top shelf and fully blacked out. No idea what the celly was. No idea how I even shot it. But that was unreal. Like, 
had never scored a game-winning goal in my life. And that feeling, it hits different. That, that was awesome. That's unreal. <laughs> I love that. Ten, by the way, 10 goals in college is 10 more than me. So good job. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've always kind of been the, the more of like the comedic relief, the reliable person like you can look to when things are going wrong. And I'll be level-headed, probably crack a smile or a joke. I don't think everyone always loves it, right? When you're down a bunch of goals or in an intense situation. It's not what everyone always wants, but I, I'm a firm believer that it, it's what we need. We need to remember that there's bigger things going on and there's a next day and a next shift and a next play and just kind of keep morale up. I think that's always what I've been known for is making sure that remember to have a, a good time too. Like where we can get intense and we can get tough and we can have bad days, but let's remember there's a bigger picture going on. And um, I kind of play that way too. I, I don't take things too seriously on the ice. I, I like to have fun with what we're doing and, um, I think reliable too. It's it, it's something from a defender mindset. I was the defender. You, you know, would be back there. You can take the risks. You can um, go and do less back checking or whatever it may be because you know I'll, I'll be back there taking care of things. So I, those are the two big things that come to mind for me: is reliability and some good comic relief. So so is that? I don't know. We call that a locker room guy. You're a locker room girl. I love that. Big time. <laughs> big time. That is absolutely. Awesome. I know you need it. And especially for us in college, it's D3 at the end of the day. Like, I think if I was at a higher level, it might be different, but we're not going pro. We're not signing contracts. The The end of the road is the four years at college. So it's like, let's just enjoy it and, and just enjoy each other's company in the game because we won't get to play it again the same way. So let's have some fun. Totally. Um, so I was a defenseman. I have a, my favorite D partner ever was, I went to Cushing. So my D partner was Keith Yandel. Um, and the reason he's my favorite D partner is because I just had to pass the puck to him and I would more than likely end up with a second assist. It's the only reason I got to play college hockey, actually. Do you, do you, do you have a favorite D partner from your playing days? I love it. This one was so tough because I, I feel like I there's been so many. The one that kept coming up, though, is this girl named Maddie Dewar. She was at Colby with me. Um, she was actually a, a winger, and I think it was my sophomore or junior year, they didn't recruit enough defenders, so they were trying to figure out who they could repurpose, and she got the call up or call down and was the only one that could make it work, but she was such a good defender to play with because she was the one that would also let you take chances, right? I, I didn't have many other D partners that would be the one that would stay back, and for me, it was just it allowed me to play a different game and kind of like up-level a little bit and, and push that I hadn't had space for or thought I had space for. It might have just been in my head too, but she was so reliable and I knew she'd always be there. And if if I needed to take a risk, like I knew she had my back and she was kind of the person who just went with the flow too. It's not easy to just change positions mid-college career. And um, she had a smile on her face every time that she did it. And I, I think I always appreciated her for that. That's a tough one though. There's been so many. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm a good student overall. I'm a little bit of a procrastinator. I like it. I like a intenser deadline, right? If you give me three months to complete something, I'll probably take the last week of the three months. Um, but I, I can execute and I can pull some good bullshit together, excuse my French, um, and, and get it done. And that that's kind of, it always like pissed off my friends who take classes with me. They, they might work on something a lot longer and we either get the same grade or maybe I sneak a better one out. Um, <laughs> but I, I'm just like the, you just figure it out. You, you get it done. I, I need a little bit of a shorter deadline to get that to get that happening but i was also history and education so tough school if you're med or, or at econ but history and education is definitely somewhat of an easier track i have to give myself that 
I can relate. I was a sociology major with a minor in art history and sign language. So yeah, I definitely, you know, people, people say Holy Cross is one of the toughest liberal arts schools you can go to, but I kind of snuck by there a little bit. Um, art history was hard at Colby. They had to memorize so much stuff. I was, I, I almost took one class and talked to somebody and then I was like, that's not it. That's too much work. I was a fiender. I, I was like, let me figure out what the easiest schedule I can craft every semester. Same, same. So, so, uh, Kat, you're, you're playing hockey at Colby. You're going to the rink every day. You're dialed in and you're just dreaming someday of selling software, I imagine. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, so honestly though, like what happened? Like, how did you eventually find your way to sales? Yeah. So, um, I originally thought I was going to be a high school social studies teacher. I did two internships. I did one internship in a second grade classroom and I absolutely hated it. Um, teaching little kids is so tough. Like it, it's just a different ball game. And then did a internship at a high school. And while I liked the interaction with the students a lot more, it's just like a lot of administrative barriers and red tape and they make it really hard to make an impact. And then the money's just awful too. Like you hear that all the time, right? It's, it's, it's hard to make like a a big living off of being a teacher. So I got to my junior year and I decided to pivot. I tried to go into the museum uh, industry. I was a, a tour guide at the Colby College Art Museum, actually. Um, and I got an internship at a Smithsonian, which was really awesome. And I, I loved it. But then I, when I came into my senior year after that experience, um, doing more digging into the museum world, it's, it's a hard world to break into. It's you got to have a master's or a PhD um, you got to know people on the board. It's a very connection heavy. And it was kind of similar where your salary cap is probably going to be 50, 60,000 for the foreseeable future, at least. And maybe 10 years down the road, you can get into the six figures. And I just knew I wanted more financial stability and, and higher ceilings out of my career. So I kind of got to my senior spring in a panic. And I, my whole life, I'm sure you guys have heard this too from people. You get the, you should go into sales. Like you'd be such a good salesperson. You're, you're cut out for that. You can talk to anybody. And I always had a negative connotation in my mind, like used car salesman, right? Um, I got to my senior year and it was kind of survival of the fittest. I was like, okay, I, I don't want to do anything with my degree, essentially. There's nothing that's going to fall into my lap and what I've spent the last four years doing. So let's go into the sales world and at least I'll make some money and get a job. My parents were like full cut off three months after graduation. They're like, you can live with us for that. And then we're charging your rent and utilities and all that. So I was like, I, just kind of scrambling. I went to every single info session that came to my campus that had a sales job, um, insurance companies, tech companies, uh, WB Mason, office supplies. Um, I just cast a wide net and tried to get any job. And I got uh, uh, really lucky with the EMC offer is, is my lottery ticket, I call it. But it was, it was kind of chance, honestly. It was just kind of let's figure out what's out there. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was just like you just see salespeople. You see people in sales roles or like friends' dads that are in sales. And I don't think I ever understood what it meant, but I knew that they were building or living a lifestyle that I wanted to mirror, right? Like they had the the big houses and the big cars. It sounds like super materialistic, but that was something for me was just like, I, I had no idea what a commission or a quota was. And I don't even think I really understood it as a BDR either. But for me, it was just like, I want to make as much money as possible. And it seems like the two options are sales, finance, or like a doctor medical field. And I'm nowhere near smart enough for finance and doctors. So it knocked those two out pretty easily for me. And, and the, the other thing with like doctor, lawyer, and even like financial services is like your earning potentials directly proportional to the amount of time you put in, right? So it's not like those aren't like sales jobs in the sense that like, yeah, you can make three hundred, five hundred thousand dollars a year consistently 
but you're going to be working 70 to 80 hours a week, right? Like, so, and that's what some people don't really think of when they think of like wanting to make a lot of money, which that's kind of how most people end up in sales, I think. Yeah. So, so, so Kat, you're, you're going to these career fairs, you're kind of, you're kind of going on a lot of first dates with a lot of different sales opportunities. Can you talk a little bit about like how you approach the interview process? Um, and like, did you interview at multiple companies or just EMC? Yeah, I interviewed at EMC, WB Mason, um, and I'm going to forget the insurance company, one of the big insurance companies in Boston, and then um, Ocean Spray as well. They've got that sales program. Um, I think I was lucky that EMC was last because I hadn't really done a ton of like more professional internships. I, I didn't get Ocean Spray and I didn't get the insurance. I ended up getting WB Mason, but that was kind of the order that I interviewed in. And I think what I learned each time was how important it is to just ask, like reach out and make connections with alumni is what I really focused on and just asking for people's advice. Um, what do they know about the interview? What kind of questions are going to be asked? What does the role entail? Because the info session only gave so much. And I think the in- I remember vividly with the insurance one, I just kind of like filled out an application and hoped for the best and didn't think anything differently. And then for WB Mason and EMC, I went really heavy into just like LinkedIn, stalking connections, asking for calls, sending emails. I even asked my friends in um, finance, you know, all the finance interviews are all so crazy and they ask a bunch of obscure questions. I, I had one of my friends do a mock interview with all the crazy questions she's gotten just to see how I can like pivot and, and be thrown off and bounce back. So I think for me, I learned the lesson of, of how important it is to prepare and it's not cheating to ask for the answers. It's kind of what you need to do, um, especially like in sales, it's all coachability. So if you can use resources and apply knowledge, then that shows that you can continue to do that in the role. And I think at first I thought it was like, oh, I shouldn't ask for help because then people will say I only got the job because I knew so-and-so, but that's kind of the world you live in once you realize it. So that was an important lesson to learn for sure. Absolutely, yeah. That's a good one. I uh, I couldn't agree more. I think it was more so the just the adjustment of the workforce in general. Like I have this vivid memory of six months in maybe and I'm driving home from work and I call my mom and I'm like, nobody warned you what an eight to five job is like. It's it's a lot like you think you're doing a lot in college with your practices and your classes, but it's all chopped up, right? You'll have an hour of class, a two hour break, two hours of class, an hour break, four hours of practice. And it's a lot more fluid and you're, you're getting stuff done throughout the day. I think that was the hardest transition for me was just eight to five straight, the commute, the trying to juggle the other parts of adulthood outside the job of getting to dentists or doctors or whatever it may be, right? And you have to find time for all of that. I think adjusting to time management of such a back-to-back schedule was really tough. Um, I think I was lucky at EMC. They, they have all the cohorts, right? So you start with the class. And I think that really benefited me. It was one reason that I took EMC over WB Mason because you start with a little group of people that are going through the same thing. It feels very similar to being on a team. Um, You start with your freshman class, right? There's people older than you that are already doing the job that you can learn from, but there's also people going through it with you in the trenches. And I think that was huge for me. And and one reason that I'm very glad I took this job and that was a tell for me was having people to have that camaraderie because that's all I had known from sports for so long. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's, it's, it, the camaraderie, the like that competing, but helping each other at the same time, like such a, such a great parallel between sports and sales that people don't really talk about enough. I don't think, um, yeah, like if you look, if you look at any locker room, right? Like the only thing 
people tend to have in common is that they all played the same sport. So you're dealing with like multiple different personalities from different backgrounds. And that's something you got to be good at in sales. And I think you work on that muscle as a, as an athlete, your your entire life. So it makes a big difference. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to get your answer. So we're going to kind of move into out of the transition into kind of, you know, getting your career started. Um, we, the way we work, uh, Kat is, Kids come in, they go through our training, and then they actually are, are typically put in front of multiple companies. Um, and, you know, at the end, they're, 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 they're getting, in a lot of cases, multiple offers. And a lot of these kids are thinking about, like, you know, remote work, what's the base salary, what's the OTE, like, you know, these types of things. Um, in your opinion, like if, if you were talking to like a, a, a newly minted former student athlete now becoming a sales professional, what are some things they should be thinking about when they choose a company very specifically to start their career? What do you think is important? Yeah, so I think development is first and foremost. Like what does the development path, plan, procedure look like? Um, a lot of companies, they might have one or two weeks of onboarding, right? And then you're just kind of thrown into it and it's learn on the job. Um, and a lot of people like the sound of that because they they think they're active learners or they're visual learners and they're like, I just need to do it. But I think what differentiates a good sales program from a great sales program is having that that structure and skeleton of being development focused and knowing how to develop long term, not just up front. It's about checking in, right? I think a lot of times you just teach something and assume it's getting applied, but you want somewhere that's gonna do a workshop with you, a one-on-one, -on -one, test you, give you feedback. Maybe like we do grading and I think that's always helpful because we're such quantifiable humans, right? It's nice to be able to put a number to it. Um, and knowing that's something that's long-term a company's gonna care about. Cause I think it's a dangerous mindset to get in. It's like, teach me at once and I'll be fine. Um, because there's a lot of blind spots to that, right? And so I think development, especially if you're not coming from a sales or tech background, it's so huge. Um, and really understanding what does it look like month six, month 12, year two, like, are there still things in place? Um, and kind of same vein is thinking like the the long-term comp plan or structure, promotion structure, and how clear is it, right? Is is there a clear time and role? Can you get averages of how long you're going to be a BDR? What does the path to AE look like? Do you have to wait for someone to leave or is it based on merit alone? Um, what happens after AE too, right? Is there senior AE? Do you, does the company promote up segment? Like sometimes you go commercial to enterprise and that's how you get bigger titles and bigger paydays. I think understanding what options look like in five, 10 years is really important. And I think like talking to a lot of my friends, a lot of times they'll take just the biggest salary, best title they can get right out of school. Um, and while it may work for some, I, I always focus more on like the long-term gratification. When I was talking to Tom, we talked about like the marshmallow um, study. I, have you seen that one from Stanford where they like put marshmallows in front of kids and they leave the room and they're like, it's two marshmallows. And when oh, yeah. if, you don't, if you don't touch them before I come back, you'll get four. And it's like a long-term study. And all the kids that didn't touch the marshmallows made more money, had happier marriages, um, like were doing better with their kids, better retirement plans. It was crazy. What And it, it's one study, sure. But that's something that I've always thought of is like, you don't always need instant gratification. Like sometimes getting something worse up front for something better down the road is what is going to pay off. I think uh, 
JR and I both would probably eat the marshmallows right <laughs> off the desk. <laughs> dude, I was literally like, that is like torture, dude. A little kid and marshmallows? Oh my God. I'm definitely, I'm snorting those marshmallows as soon as the guy yeah, I had to learn the, I had to learn the delayed gratification and take me a long time. Yeah. Especially after school, after college, I was like instant, instant, you know, like you need it. But 30 years it took me to figure that one out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's it. That's also a very good, uh, that's an EMC type of answer, Kat, not in a bad way, but yeah, the development program and the career progression. I think that's, I think it's, it makes you like 10 times the salesperson if you can get some sort of development from a professional um, yeah. organization like an EMC, 100%. A lot, yeah, a lot of listeners are choosing between like startups or big companies these days. So that's, it's important that you kind of touch on that. Yeah. I, I think the, the trade off for like an earlier stage company that doesn't, <laughs> that doesn't have like that structure is looking for a leader that is going to bring, yeah. is going to bring that structure through their management style. Right. Like that's where, that's where we, I think at the company I was at for a long time, we were definitely early stage, but every single leader we promoted had like this like development, like this continuous improvement, continuous development type of mindset in the way they've led people, which I think is super important. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it doesn't have to, like, I think I have the, the mindset of it's, it is structured because that's what I went through, but it doesn't have to be, it just ha you have to have access to resources, right? An, an engineer that's going to be willing to give the time, a manager that's willing to give it, YouTube, like internal sites, like whatever it may be. Um, you need something that's going to, you're going to be able to learn from that's not just on the job because on the job so uncontrollable. Like you can never guarantee how a customer will react. So you need those little pockets of learnings too, to perfect the craft, in my opinion. Yep. A hundred percent. So, so Kat, you've probably conducted countless interviews with BDR candidates, right? Yeah. Can you share a couple secrets for the listeners that they can prepare for an upcoming interview with? Yeah, absolutely. So I think for me in our program, I don't think it's that unique, right? We don't need any experience. You don't need tech or sales. I think most BDR roles are like that. But I think a lot of candidates that I see, they try to come in and prove that they have the experience, right? From an internship or a class, whatever it may be. And in my mind, I'm like, I'm going to teach you what you need to know. I'm going to teach you how we sell, what our products, what matters, what the value is. I need to know that you're coachable and that you have charisma and you can tell a story and you can be a team player. And so I focus more on energy and storytelling in those situations, right? I don't need you to prove to me that you sold something in technology before. I need you to prove to me that you can have a conversation with a human and be personable and tell a story because that's what I see sales as, right? Like when you're talking to customers, you're telling the story of the product or the features of the company and that's what I look for in interviews, too. Um, I, I think for me, I, I like to think about the star method. I think that's one. I think Amazon coined that maybe. But that's something that I, I see being really successful um, is when you go through that where it's the I'm not even going to remember what it is, but you're, you're telling a story. But the biggest important part of it is telling why it matters at the end. That's what I tell all candidates that I'm helping prep is if I ask you about a time you did something, don't just tell me about a time you did something tie it back to how you think it applies to this role or how you plan on applying it or what that looks like in action and why it matters. Like anticipate why I'm asking a question and add that extra value at the end. I think that's where you really set yourself apart in those stories is kind of tying the bow on all of it. Um, and coachability is huge too. Like if you can't tell me strengths and weaknesses and how you're working on them and a time you applied feedback, like 
those are big red flags, especially in our program. It's it's so feedback and development oriented that I need to be confident that you're going to listen to me and trust the process at the end of the day. 100%. I like that. We we haven't had many people on the show talk about they're looking for people with no, not with no experience, but not to come in claiming they have all sorts of experience because it's, especially in technology sales, like this, the technology is constantly evolving. It's hard for somebody to sell like an autonomous database with, you know, no experience. It just came to market, right? Um, exactly. So I, I'm just going to, take the mic for a second. But when I used to interview people, I wanted to see if they could follow directions, which is so simple. And I would say, explain to me how to ride a bike in three sentences. You have no clue what people would say. Like people would, the, the, best, good reps, one. the best reps would give me three sentences without even much thought and just give me three sentences how to ride a bike. People would be like, especially younger, at, you know, not athletes, younger candidates, they'd be like, why? <laughs> And I'm like, oh my god! Like, like, so I'm picturing myself later if I hire this person, I say, hey, do this. They're gonna go, why? Right? Like, so I, yep. I need them to kind of trust me that I'm giving them directions that are gonna help them sell more, generate more meetings. But yeah, I just simple. Can you follow directions? And most people can't. It's wild. Yeah, it's wild. But I, I always tell my, I, I've told my peers this, like, because they'll, someone will ask them for help prepping for an interview, and they're like, oh, how much do you help prep? And I'm like. I'll give them most of the answers because I think I said this earlier, right? Like if I can tell you exactly what we're looking for and you can't spit it back out, my, my decision's easy. Like that's done. I, I'm that's good. But if you can, then it's like, okay, maybe you didn't have great answers, but I know that you can apply feedback and you can be coachable and you can move forward with simple directions. Like you just said. So that that's huge for me too. Um, that's a good, I might start throwing that one in. I like that question. It's, it's crazy. It. Cat. Like people say, you know, people just tell you, I can only you can imagine. see right away how people think it's, it's wild. That's a good one. Um, so let's, let's fast forward a little bit. So, so you got somebody's a, a new BDR, um, on your team. Like what, what do you think the best, the best way for a new BDR to get off to a fast start in their new career? Yeah, I, that's a really good question. I think it's, a combination of a curiosity and asking every single question that comes to mind and then just doing everything. Just go out and try stuff. I remember vividly in my new hire class, they told us the people that excel the quickest are the people that raise their hand every time there's an opportunity to volunteer and they volunteer first. And I didn't listen to that advice and I, I was scared and nervous and I didn't want to look dumb in front of my peers. And so I stayed in the back and I didn't have the quickest ramp time and it, it, it came true that people that were always raising their hand, like the person who you're annoyed that they volunteered so many times, that's the person that in my experience went the quickest. And I, I've seen that a lot as a leader too, where if you just try things, you may bomb it and you may mess it up, but you're going to get feedback. Someone's going to tell you, or you're going to know what you did wrong and you won't make that same mistake again. And you'll be able to grow a lot quicker because you're making mistakes faster. And I think that goes into a lot of sales. It's daunting. It's scary. Cold calling's not always glamorous. But if you just pick up a phone and do it and get yelled at and just move on, you, you've got your first angry customer down and the next one's easier and the next one's easier. Um, and then curiosity's big on top of that, right? Just ask questions. There's very rarely a stupid question. Um, and you might as well ask. You've got endless resources around you, above you, wherever it may be. Um, so just use them, right? Like there's so many doors that you can open if you just think to to ask a question. So Kat, follow up to that. If you're in the BDR role looking to get to an AE role, how should you approach that? Same way? Yeah. So 
I think it's about execute. It's it's realizing that the BDR role has a purpose and it's aligned to what an AE needs to be and not trying to be an AE in the BDR role. I think that's where I see people, they go too quickly and they're asking all of their AE mentors what the AE is doing with their day, not realizing that the BDR job is a different job. And a lot of times the BDR role is just about being gritty. It's about making the 100 dials a day. It's about sending out 100 emails. It's just about understanding the grind of what hard work looks like and getting the at-bats while you do it. And just like really leaning into that experience and just being the best BDR you can be is the ones that I want to promote the most onto my teams and, and selling teams today is people that can just put their head down and work and know it's not a glamorous job, but be okay with that and just grind it out. I couldn't agree more, Kat. Like when people ask me that, like, oh, JR, I've been a BDR for six months. I want to be an AE. What do I need to do? I go, you need to crush the BDR job. Like there's other stuff you can start to do, but like if you're not doing that, then forget about it, right? Like, exactly. and, and that's why you see a lot of, especially probably not in the last few months, but before that, when the job market was crazy, you see all these BDRs jumping to go to a new company to be, become an AE when they haven't mastered BDR yet. Like it's, there's going to be a, there's going to be a reckoning, I think, in, in, in the next like couple of years. Um, yeah. Yeah. You took a, a really similar career track that John and I did, right? Like we were, we were both successful individual contributors. Um, and like, I've got a ton of friends that started their career at Dell EMC. And like most of the folks that I knew, they started as an SA, which is, you know, EMC Dell's version of an, of a BDR. And then they moved into ISR and all they wanted to do was get to the field. I need to get to the field because um, then they want to be a commercial rep and then move into enterprise and named accounts. But like with you, you kind of took every opportunity you could to really like lead and coach people, um, you know, that next generation of seller at, at Dell EMC. Can you tell us why, like, why did you end up picking that path? I know John and I have our reasons, but I'm curious to know yours. Yeah, absolutely. So I think first for me, it was deciding that I didn't need to get to the field as quick as possible. I didn't really know where I wanted to live. And someone gave me the advice that the field's always going to be there and it rarely changes. The field looks the same as it does today that it did 10 years ago. Obviously, different products and people, but the job's the same. You're meeting customers and partners in person um, and selling that way. And for me, I was like, okay, I want to be 30, 40 years tech sales career. So I'll get to the field eventually, but what can I do today that's going to make that second 20 or second 30 even better, right? And that, that's something that I realized is getting leadership opportunities at such a young age was something that was a, really eye-opening for me. And if you go to the field, it's another five or six years until you're going to be a people leader. So I was like, why don't I knock some of that out now and learn what it's like to lead people and manage people? Um, and then it should hypothetically make me 10 times better in the field because at the end of the day, selling is just understanding people. And that's what being a manager is too. It's what motivates people. Um, and so I, I had, a, then I had to decide what type of leader I wanted to be. So I kind of had to look at, do I want to manage BDRs or do I want to manage sellers? Um, and I got really good advice from my current manager when I was a seller. And, and he was like, just kind of like, take note of how you feel every day for a week. Like think about every time you're tackling a task, how does that task make you feel? Are you excited to do it? Are you dreading to do it? What what do you put off and what do you jump at the opportunity to do? What kind of fills your cup? And that was really impactful advice for me because what I realized was that when I got questions from BDRs, when BDRs came up to my desk, when they found an opportunity for me, 
it lit me up. Like I got so excited. I'd jump on ping and I'd answer all their questions and give them feedback that they didn't even ask for. And I was just loving that. And I could see my peers rolling their eyes when someone came up to their desk and they, they were like, oh, I don't want to be bothered. And I was like, no, wait, come over here. I'll help. And for me, that was just super telling. I was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to go into the BDR world because it just excites me. And I know I can learn people management skills in both sides. So why not go to where I'm more excited about today and more happy being? And it, it worked out really well for me. I actually started in development. So I, I did like learning and enablement for a little over a year and then did BDR manager um, and then got to manage the program too, like at the senior level. So it, it, it worked out well for me. I didn't know that. Let's, let's dig on the skill development and enablement. So we're in a new year. What skills should reps be focused on in 2023 if they want to be on the top? top ep- That's echelon? a good question. Yeah, I think um, like financial and value-based selling is going to be the make or break this year. The economy is a nightmare. Um, you hear customers every day. Budgets are disappearing at the drop of a hat. You have no idea what's going to happen. Um, but at least the, the technology that we sell, you still need it. And so it's about being able to tell the story of why they need it and how they can get creative financially to justify getting it. And I think that's what's gonna set people apart is, is telling the TCO ROI story and, and combining it with what their business needs from a value standpoint. So I think a lot of people are great value sellers and a lot of people are great finance sellers, but I think that combination is gonna be critical this year because there's gonna be a lot of purchases that can't be justified at the customer level and you have to stand out. And I think understanding what your champion cares about is the value, but what the person signing the PO cares about is the finance. And so you have to be able to play both sides of the table. I agree. I, I, and I think part of that is like discover, discovery and qualification, right? Like really understanding the negative consequences financially of not doing anything. Cause that's, that's, that's yeah. what everybody's everybody this year is going to be selling against business as usual. Even, even when you're selling like, you know, a budgeted item, like a, like servers or storage or backup, like it's like, okay, we definitely need to upgrade, but do we really need to do it now? Right? Like that is going to be the cost of doing 100%, nothing. A hundred percent. Absolutely. What do, you, what do you see like some of the common mistakes that like new, new sellers, new BDRs make when they, when they're, when they're first getting started cap? Yeah, I think one of the big things I see is like focusing too much on what's supposed to happen next that you forget you're having a conversation. Like that's something I see so many of a first quarter seller is they they had their BDR rolled down pat. They knew how to get a customer to say yes to a next call and they just kind of went about the same path and same questions and knocked them out and got a yes and moved on and transitioning into selling yeah, you have to really understand what they're saying because it's not just saying yes to a next call. It's saying yes to $100,000, right? And it changes the game. And to do that, it goes back to what you just said of like, you have to understand what they care about. And if you're not listening actively, and if you're only focusing on what you're going to ask next, you're going to miss these softballs that they give you. I can't tell you, like I get on calls so often with first quarter reps and a customer will say something and they'll be like, oh, yeah, that's been a pain. And the rep will be like, okay, so what about this? And just completely change the subject. And I'm like, oh, whoa, whoa, like, I don't even care if the pain has nothing to do with me. Let's figure out what it is. Because as a human, you want to be heard and seen. So let's dig in. And if it benefits us, that's great. And if it doesn't, the customer likes us a little bit more. Because he, they obviously wanted us to dig in there. They wouldn't have said it. And so let's dig in. Um, I think that active listening piece is huge. And being able to pivot, too. I think the... Um, 
I see a lot of first quarter reps, they get so thrown off when a customer like gets on a call and doesn't want to build rapport. And they're just like, what do you want? And they just like go into a shell and they're like, oh, I don't know. I want you to buy something. And like, panic. It's like, no, just like throw it back at them. That's like, just try something and just like roll with the punches almost. I think a lot of times you're just so uptight about what perfect looks like. You forget you're just having a conversation with another human being and like just focus on that and connecting with them and everything else will come together if you just focus on being fluid. 100%. Yeah. That, 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 that like dynamic nature of being able to, you know, pay attention when there's an opportunity to dig in on something and take it a little further um, is huge. And, and sales is asking questions and listening to answers. That's what great sales will do. Yeah. So we got, we got a few more questions. I'm going to ask one, then John, and then we'll end with our final. But I guess, and, he, and I think you can appreciate this, Kat. There's a lot of people on sales floors across the United States that look like John and I, right? A lot of males. A lot of white dudes. Um, and obviously, you know, part of Shift Group's mission is to change that. But we are fortunate that as a, as a, as a business that focuses on former athletes, 50% of them are females. So we have a ton of female candidates. What's your advice for those female candidates out there that are, they're getting into a, like, a very, you know, male dominated industry? Like, what, what would you say to those, to those, to those ladies that are listening? Yeah, I, I think the biggest thing is just like allowing yourself to take up space. I think so many times we're hypersensitive to the fact, and I know I was when I started, that we are one of the few females in the room or the only female in a lot of rooms too. And so you get worried about what you're going to say and how it's going to be taken. Are you going to look dumb or that like the silly little girl? And it's like, just well, leave those thoughts at the door and just allow yourself to know that you've earned the seat at the table. You wouldn't have been hired if you didn't have the great qualities that are gonna make you successful and be vocal with that seat. Like allow yourself to ask questions and take up space and volunteer for opportunities and just be who you are and, and really step out and you know what you're doing. It's just a matter of doing it. And I think a lot of times we as females get in our head because we're so focused on perfection or whatever it may be that a lot of times it's just giving yourself that push of you just have to do it and you're gonna surprise yourself at how you execute. Um, I think a big part of it too is if you look at just in gen like generalizing about male versus females, females are wildly more empathetic and EQ right now is so critical to selling. And if, if you look at the data, females are better sellers, right? Customers resonate better with us. We're able to empathize with what they're going through, especially in a tough market like this. We can connect with them again at that human level so much better than a lot of males can, again, generalizing. But I think it's allowing yourself to lean into that and, and using your empathy as a skill and not a weakness. And I think that's going to send you a really far away. But the, the biggest thing is just you're there for a reason and you deserve to be there and, and you have the right to do every single at bat that comes your way. And it's just about going and doing it and, and stepping out of that discomfort and just being super confident and knowing that that you can knock it out of the park. And if you don't, you're going to get another chance to try. So you might as well. I always talk about the empathy. The empathy is huge. People don't really realize. You, you give me a rep to rep, one's a male, one's a female, all things equal. I'm hiring the female 10 times out of 10 times, every single time. We run the world. <laughs> I love it. Two, two more questions for you, Kat. So these are our, these are our super super power questions, superhero questions. I don't know what you want to call them, but if we asked you to highlight one skill that makes you elite, what would that be? Yeah, this is 
This is a tough one, but I, I went, I'm, I'm back and forth. But I think where I land is just eternal optimism. Like when I think about what my people that have worked for me or worked with me say about working for me or working with me is that I will always approach every challenge with a smile on my face and a figure it out mentality. Like they, life's going to throw stuff at you. Sales is going to throw stuff at you. And if you can figure out how to just take those hits and move on in, in a positive manner, I think that's what sets me apart because I, I, I don't get thrown off. Like I, I've seen a lot of crap get thrown my way and it's just a matter of let's figure it out. And hey, we fix the last one, we'll fix this one and we'll move on to whatever the next one is. But again, like no one is in, in my program for the long time. No one's here for a 30 year career as an ISR. It doesn't exist. So let's enjoy the time that we have, learn while we're here and, and go on to the bigger and better things. Um, that That's something that I always take pride in is I'm going to make sure that we remember to have fun, even when it's a really crappy day. Um, and I think it kind of goes into like, not, there's no excuses, right? I'm not a believer in a bad patch or a bad territory or the, your quota inflate. It's like, you get what you get. There's, you don't hear professional athletes saying like, oh, it's bad ice. So the, the game sucked today. It's like, no, like I suck today. Let's, you got that extreme ownership kind of aspect of things. So might've said too many things there, but it's a hard question. <laughs> No, I love it. No, no victims. That's what we always say. No victims. Yep. hundred percent. So, so Kat, last question. Um, my dad was a, a hockey coach for 40 years and he used to tell us when we were little, a lot of, a lot of people play hockey, but there's not a lot of hockey players. So kind of like really instilling in us this idea of like professionalism and like, you know, like, like bringing like the idea of like what you're doing into your bones, right? And we think like the highest praise that you can give a salesperson is calling them a pro. So we want to hear from you. What does being a pro in sales, what does that mean to you? Yeah. So I think when, when I think about this, I think about all, kind of what I was just saying too, but it's about just showing up and, and knowing what you have to execute, knowing what the goals are and having steps to take to get there, right? It's not just about achieving the one long-term goal. It's about what are all the little things that I can do every single day to hit the quarterly quota or make the yearly president's club, like whatever that may be. And it's about knowing every single day what small, medium or large actions you need to take to get better. Um, not making excuses. I, I think that's a huge part of it, too. Like, like I just said, you, you're not going to hear a professional sports player blaming other things that are, are somewhat in their control. Right. You're going to hear them take ownership and say, hey, I I'm dropped the ball. I messed this up. Um, I think that's a, a big piece of it too. And it's just knowing what you have to do and putting your head down and getting gritty. I, I think grittiness is, is huge as being a professional. It's about hard work and it's about knowing what has to be done. So I think a lot of people can work hard, but in the wrong direction. And a lot of people know what has to get done, but are too lazy to do it. And if you can cross those paths and, and combine those two thoughts, you're going to be pretty dangerous. That's like one of my favorite answers. <laughs> A lot of people know the work, but they're too lazy to do it. I couldn't agree more. 100%. 100%. Or, or, or the kid that, that's working his butt off on just the wrong things, right? Yeah. Totally. Like effort doesn't always pay off either. I love it. Like, I, I, I could just round that out, Cat, with like, I've managed quite a few sales reps and BDRs in my day. And some of the ones that were at the top, top, top that I would rank, they had their CRM updated all the time like they would yeah. do some of the you know sometimes in sales you get these people who are like they go out there and they do a big deal but they're real sloppy at how they do the rest of their business right 
But I, I one one guy comes to mind out in uh, Calgary who he used to just have it. Everything was so tight, even like the nonsensical things, the the HR trainings we had to do. He always had them on time. Like he never missed anything. And I was I was very impressed with that type of rep. It's, you know, the reps out there who close deals, but they're lazy about other things. I, I don't think you're as professional or a pro as you could be. That's just my favorite. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but no, I, I couldn't agree more. You guys hit the nail on the head. Kat, this was an awesome conversation. Another must listen for our candidates. Thank you so much for, for giving yeah, us some time it. today. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you guys. This was super fun. First podcast in the books. There you go. There you go. Thank you. This wraps up this episode of Merchants of Change. If you enjoyed this episode, the most meaningful way to say thanks is to submit a review wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're interested in working with us, please come find us at www.shiftgroup.io.